The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Trish is here, our program host. You can say hi to Trish, or if you have any questions, check in with her at the end. Alan's also here. He organizes our uh, PA system and all the recordings that get up on the Internet. Almost all of the talks and other programs, workshops that are done at the center get recorded. If you're interested in helping out, you can always check in with Alan off and on. They're looking for additional people to help either at home working on the editing of the talks before they get put up on the website or being here on a night and making sure that the teacher gets mic'd up and the iPad gets set up to do the recording. It's pretty straightforward if you're interested in helping. And also this is a good time just to remind ourselves of this circle of giving and receiving. Many of you have heard this little monthly Dharma talk or rap about the center and how it works. And it's really meant to be kind of a teaching on a way to live our life, this circle of giving and receiving. And, you know, living in this society, most things, you know, there's a price for it. And it's okay. The job, we negotiate a salary, or we're told what our salary is. And we do our work, and then we get paid. And it's okay. Those systems are okay. And there are even Buddhist meditation centers that have, you know, fees or whatever, the way they operate. But it's, um, it's sort of a, more of an adventure and the possibility of something beautiful arising when you kind of organize any relationship in the circle of giving and receiving. And you can even do it in places where there is a set charge or you're getting a set uh, salary because it's really more about how you relate to it. So in terms of common ground, when you come here, the practice is to receive everything as a free gift. Just like at work, you know, if you want to practice it at work, when you get your paycheck at the end of the month, see it as a free gift. Well, how nice, you know? Or if you want to do it in terms of your taxes, when you ride on the road or when you, you know, drive across a bridge or receive some government service, see it as a free gift, like free gift. How nice that the society has organized itself in this way that there is this program or there is this thing. And I, I receive it with appreciation. I'm really, I mean, it's not perfect probably, but it's nice that there's a stoplight here or that there's this here or there's this there, right? And then when we pay our taxes, you look at your paycheck and you see, okay, this amount has gone to the state, this has gone to the feds, this has gone to the county. It's like, let that be a free gift. I happily don't think, oh, I have to, I'll get thrown in jail. But we can shift our view, like, no, no, I'm intentionally, happily giving my money. I know it's not all getting spent the way that I'd like it to be spent, but that's part of what it means to be in community, right? That we participate and sometimes we get our way and sometimes we don't. So it's the same thing here at the center, and it will be a lot easier to learn how to do this at a place like Common Ground, where it's easier to say, yeah, this whole place exists because of countless other people have made it happen, and I get to be the free recipient. And that's really sweet. 
to be to have these teachings, to have this place, this these programs, this community freely offered in this way. And then just let it be a natural arising of wanting to give back because it makes you happy. Because if we live with the attitude like, oh, I got this and I don't have to give anything back, that's a stingy attitude and it doesn't feel good in the heart to live that way. But on the other hand, if you feel like guilty and you give a lot, volunteer all the time, give a lot of money, in a way that's out of balance in your life, that's not going to feel good either. So how can your response, your giving back, be something organic and natural that leaves a really good taste? When you reflect on it at home, when you're not trying to impress anybody and you think about this circle of giving and receiving, this relationship you have with a place like Common Ground, and all that's left over when you think about it is a good feeling, right? that's a good sign. That means you have a healthy relationship. But if it doesn't feel good, then play with it. Change it up. Give more or give less until it feels really good when you reflect on it. So once a month, I just remind people to take, you know, to really give it some thought, really reflect. Not necessarily even here while you're here. You could do it at home. But bring it to mind and just try to imagine a way of more freely receiving, like be conscious about receiving it as a free gift. And be conscious about giving back in a way that makes you happy. And in that way, you know, I think our annual budget is somewhere between three hundred and three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. It just comes in that way naturally. There's not like big donors, it's just a lot of people finding a way to give back in a way that makes them happy. And of course, a lot of the work that gets done here is done by volunteers too. And uh, there is a sheet over by the donation bowl that will give you some more details, or you can go online, or you can talk to Trish at the end. And now we have an iPad out there for people who want to use credit cards. We've moved into the 20th century here. So um, besides cash and checks, and some people you know, work it out with their bank to send a check at some interval that you want, at some amount, that makes sense. So there's any number of ways to do it. There's more information on our website too. So just let us know if you have any questions about that. Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher here, is also our bookkeeper. She works on Tuesdays. So you can always call during the business hours on Tuesdays if you have any more technical questions about what you want to do. So we're finishing up this discussion on the hindrances. We've been using Ajahn Sushito's book, um, uh, about meditation practice. He's a really well-known Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition. He was an abbot of a monastery in England, but now getting uh, a little older, he no longer have, has those duties, so we actually see him here more in the United States teaching, which has been wonderful. And uh, He's written a number of books you can download for free online, including this book. I think it's Meditation, A Way of Awakening. And Ajahn Sushito, so S-U-C-I-T-T-O. If you just put that, his last name, Ajahn just means teacher in Thai. And uh, so you can uh, get that book if you want. And uh, that we've been talking about hindrances. What is it that arises to hinder, to disturb the balance of the mind? And interestingly, in the way that Buddha understood his mind and the way that we can understand our mind uh, agitation, you know, all the superficialities, all the superficiality of our mind, the distraction of our mind, the reactivity of our mind, 
That's really like the waves on the ocean. This is a common image that's used in the tradition. And then you think about the ocean, how deep it can be in places, you know, miles deep, I think, right? And but our attention, you know, will will notice the surface, the waves, the whipping up from the wind. But the great depth of the ocean is pretty stable, undisturbed, clear, probably. I mean, not that there's a lot of light, but the activity of the surface isn't distorting, disturbing the depth. Now, the way the uh, part of the mind that we call attention, the way the mind pays attention, partly just to survive, you know, through evolution, its tendency is to look at the surface level, that agitated, disturbed, reactive part of the mind. That gets the attention. So it's easy for us to imagine that when our mind is in its normal, distracted, superficial, disturbed, wanting, fearing, anxious state, doubtful state, it's very easy for us to conclude, and this is, this is really the very definition of delusion, that that's who I am, that's the truth, that's the whole truth. And then it can seem like, in terms of our meditation practice and just our spiritual practice more generally, that I've got a lot of work to do because when I look at my mind, I'm mostly I'm not looking at my mind, but when I do, it's a mess. Right? It's like same with our body. It's like mostly we're unaware of the body, but then when we take a moment to just sort of settle into the experience of the body, we can go, oh my God, no wonder I don't want to be aware of my body. You know, because there's this sort of, the effects of chronic stress is there, have been layered down on the body for so many years. Like, why would I want to feel that? And I overate, I ate the wrong kind of food, and I haven't been exercising, and my body's old, and I've got these injuries, and I haven't really taken care of the injuries. And it can be this, it's like, oh, I don't really want to be aware of my mind or my body. And you can see why we're so susceptible to marketing around distraction and media, and all the other sort of ways we use our mind and use technology and other things to just get lost, to get absorbed, so we don't actually have to be present. So it's easy to understand that, but it doesn't take much reflectiveness to see that, well, that's not going to work. That strategy of being a human being, having a mind and body, but not really wanting to be here in the experience. You see, it just doesn't make sense when we say it out loud, does it? Yeah, I'm, I, I don't want to die. I want to be alive, but I just don't want to be here. Somebody said that once. I don't, I don't know if it was Woody Allen that some comedian said, you know, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> right? You know, I'm really okay being a human being, but I don't, I don't actually want to be a sensitive, awake, connected human being. But that's sort of, what's the point? What's the point of spending our life, all life long, dulling out the natural sensitivity of the mind? What would the point be? Because probably at the time of death, unless it's sudden, you know, all of a sudden, the reality of dying will cut through all the superficiality 
all the patterns of distractedness, and we'll have a few seconds ago, I think I've missed the point. You know, spending all, most of our energy, a lot of our energy, looking for something to absorb into, to be distracted with, to react to. And you know, a lot of our so-called good actions, like even it's, it's possible with social activism, that it's really a way to avoid feeling what we're feeling. doesn't mean that our work in the world is somehow not helping. It just means the motivation is really about not wanting to be present, not afraid to be intimate, afraid to feel what we're feeling, afraid or you know, not willing to see what's here to see, feel what's here to feel, understand what's here to understand. And of course, when we do that deeper, more subtle work, then when we do engage the world and have kids or have a job or get involved in social change, then that work, it just comes from a deeper place. Really, the impact is greater. So we need to really respect this work. And as a, the point I was trying to make is, one of the things we begin to understand is that as, as real and big as agitation seems, distractedness, reactivity seems, it's really just the surface level of the mind. And one of the, the consistent fruits you hear from people who've done a lot of practice over many years is that it's not that their mind doesn't get distracted. It's not that they don't have reactive emotional patterns, afflictive emotions, but it's that more and more, even in the midst of their mind being crazy or acting out in different ways, more and more the, the person, the practitioner, senses the equivalent of the great depth of the ocean, the great stillness, the great silence, the great space of wisdom, the great resonant heart of compassion. It's not so much... Like in Buddhism, we wouldn't say so much, that's who I really am. But it is, it turns out to be the actual nature of the mind. That the, the real nature of the mind is empty of all this superficial self-drama, all the fear, fearing, all the wanting, all the hating, all the being bored needing a fix, that sort of addictive tendency we have for intensity, right? In a lot of ways, the best description for ourselves is that we're intensity junkies. It's just different, like what you find intense may be different than what I find intense. You know, some of you being, you know, what would be intense is getting a new model airplane to put together or, you know, something silly, what some of us might think are silly. Sorry, that's your thing. <laughs> You know, and other people, it's like going out dancing or, you know, who knows what it is. Reading more news, you know, looking at the latest poll. So there's different things that we get our intensity fix with. But mostly we're addicted to something that's intense. Now, how about if we cultivated or rediscovered a taste for that great depth and breadth and stillness an emptiness of self-drama of the mind, the heart itself. In one uh, formulation in the Thai Force tradition, 
of Buddhism, they, they talk about it this way, that there are two things. There's the activity of the mind, and the activity of mind would be pretty much everything we think of, like thoughts move, right? That's an activity of the mind. Seeing is a moving activity. Seeing is never static. Hearing is never static. Sensing the sensations of touch, never static. Emotions aren't static. So there are many things that are moving. And basically, that's what we call reality. Reality is a movement. And then there's the mind. So there's the activity of the mind, and there's the mind. Now, we know the activity of the mind, and part of the activity of of the mind is our reaction to the activity of the mind, which is just more activity, right? Emotional reactions, thinking about, proliferating, wondering, fantasizing about what's coming and going. So that's more coming and going. Now, part of our practice is to realize the space of the mind that knows, that's aware of the activity. This is the basic movement of mindfulness to rediscover in as many moments as we can and at at times in a continuous way, sort of not being pushed around by what's coming and going. You see people sometimes, and they look pretty serene as they're sitting, but that doesn't mean intense emotion, intense physical sensations, disturbing memories, exotic fantasies. I mean, anything could be happening to that person, but they might be taking refuge in the space, let's say the space of the mind, the open, empty, undisturbed space of the mind that is intimate, right in the middle of all that that's coming and going, but not getting pushed around by it. And that's a real insight. It's nice to kind of hear these words and have a sense, but when have you realized, because probably you have in moments, that kind of equanimity, that kind of peace, but not peace because you're in the middle of a perfect meadow where there are no mosquitoes and the flowers are blooming, and there's a nice cool breeze and tranquil deer over there and no ticks and that, that kind of peace. But like you're right in the middle of daily life, this great imperfect world. But the mind doesn't have a problem with anything. And it also doesn't have a problem with engagement, with responding. So the not having a problem doesn't mean we're passive. We could be, you know, speaking truth to power or keeping our mouth shut or we could be doing anything. But whatever's happening, the mind doesn't have a problem. The mind also doesn't have a problem with the personality doing whatever it's doing. And even if the personality is in, involved with something that's unskillful, the wisdom, that space of compassion, that space of wisdom, that space that's not getting pushed around by anything, it sees the activity of the personality. It sees what it's setting in motion, like, oh, honey, this isn't helping. Right? And it, so it, like, the impact of even when we're unskillful, it takes it in. Oh, yeah, let's not do this again. Or if you're being really skillful, like you're just a genius in that moment. And your response is so beautiful and so appropriate and so wise, then that empty wisdom, that empty compassion would also take that in. Oh, honey, this is great. 
Right? It really sees it, but it doesn't take it personally. And this is part of what this insight is, is seeing that the activity is what it is, but it's not self. And the activity, remember, includes whatever the personality is doing, whatever you're saying, even whatever you're thinking. That's all activity that is being known by this empty space of wisdom and love that isn't pushed around by what's being known, isn't stained. This is another way that they talk about it in the Buddhist tradition, that this part of the mind that you could call the unconditioned or nibbana or freedom, the liberated mind, can't be stained. doesn't matter how despicable your actions are. And some actions are really despicable. They cause a lot of harm. But this mind can't be stained. Now, what is it that hinders, what, have, what is it that's going on now that makes it hard to realize that? That's the question, right? Because realizing that, then we know how to be in the middle of the messy world. Without realizing this unconditioned mind, then we get very confused by the conditioned world, the movement of the world. We take it personally. We feel personally invested in having it our way, the way we think it should be. We can justify controlling. We can justify stealing. We can justify oppression. We can justify complacency. We can justify everything that's terrible in the world, obviously. like That's why there are terrible things going on in the world, in us and around us, because it's justified. People find ways of justifying everything that has happened and has ever happened. But can you justify, you know, the more we're really grounded in the moment, closer, more intuiting this space of freedom, this space of wisdom and compassion, the harder it is to act out in ways that are harmful. Try it sometime. Like when you're really want to get revenge or you just want to gossip, put somebody down with one of your friends. And just don't judge yourself. Just be aware. Just see it as it actually is. Not judging it, just being intimate. Feel what it feels like in your body. See the activity in your mind. Notice the emotions that go with it. And see if you can continue acting out in an unskillful way. Just as a hypothesis, it's impossible to be unskillful when the mind is truly mindful. Just see if that's not true for you. Or another way is when you're really acting out in ways that are harmful to yourself and others, you'll always notice that you're not aware. Not that the awareness is not stable. It's not clear. It doesn't have that sense of being... Uh, you know, the great depth and breadth of the ocean, like that wisdom, that compassion, that simple, clear, unshakable presence is not there. We're like a, when we're acting out and doing unskillful things, we're like a frightened animal or a greedy animal. You know, like the way we eat when nobody's around. <laughs> or the way we consume media when no one's around. Or, you know, whatever. You know, you know the place. <laughs> we all know the place, right? So that's like we're a beast in those moments. 
acting out our fear, acting out our lust, acting out our anger, storming, you know. But when we bring out a wise, stable, clear, kind, not judging presence, it's like it's really hard for those things to last for long. They fall away on their own, not because I'm trying to control my mind and make it go away. They just fall away. And this teaches us a lot about how to work with the hindrances, not controlling them, just being aware. So we actually want to see, and I mentioned this last week if you weren't here, we want to see these five, and this is just one way to organize all of the hindering, disturbing tendencies of our mind, wanting things to be different than they are, not wanting something to be the way it is, too little energy like we have when we overeat or when we've been overwhelmed by too many details or difficult experiences, you know, just that that mind that just wants to curl into the fetus position. Even when people are meditating, sometimes you see they put their meditation shawl a little bit higher up. <laughs> sometimes they'll just throw it around so they don't see, kind of slump down. It's sort of the meditative equivalent of being in the fetal position. And it's really like, I need to escape. So it's just the opposite of like waking up, which is what our practice is about. It's like, I just want to escape into some soft, cushy, la-la land place where I'll have some, some distance from what feels afflictive. It's totally understandable because sometimes life is overwhelming and that strategy seems to make sense. And we, you know, there is a place for getting a hug, crawling into bed, taking a hot bath, cooking a good meal for ourselves, you know, some healthier version of wanting to die, wanting to disappear, you know, drink too much, take drugs, eat too much, watch too much TV, because as a way of like uh, being oblivious, not wanting to feel. So this is our predicament, how to get interested in what it is that disturbs that. So why not use this list or come up with your own? Wanting, not wanting, or hating, aversion, fear, too much energy, too, or too little energy, too much energy, restlessness, and doubt, that circular kind of doubt, where we stay on the surface, we don't actually connect. And I just had started last week mentioning some of the strategies the Buddha recommends for working with the hindrances, and I find it really useful. So for each one, it's all about what you're paying attention to. So when we're caught with greed, the greedy mind, the lusting mind, entranced by possibilities, wanting to become somebody, wanting some kind of future for ourselves, wanting somebody to like us, right? So what is the mind doing that feeds the wanting? It's looking at some aspect of what it is that we want. It's looking at the attractive aspect of what we want. So if we're really fantasizing about some relationship, then notice how when you bring that person to mind, you're just looking at the attractive part of that person, whatever it is. It might be a physical 
peace. It may be some part of the personality that you imagine they have. Oh, right? Or some future together with that person. And you just keep looking at it, and the looking at it feeds the fire of desire. And the fire of desire creates the impulse to want to think about the person or the relationship again, and you think about one sliver of it, right? You could think about so many aspects of the possible relationship with that person. Whatever it is, you know, if it's like a physical thing, it's like one of the trainings in Buddhism that turns people off, but actually I'll tell you a story that comes from the tradition where somebody uh, was not a very good partner and their spouse ran away and in this case the guy went looking for his spouse and uh, he passed the monk and he said uh, did you see my wife you know she left me and uh, and the, the guy described her you know this beautiful woman whatever and uh Monk said, no, I, I didn't. And the guy said, are you sure? I'm pretty sure she went down this road. Are you sure you didn't see her? He said, no, I did see a set of teeth. You know, I did see a toenail. Right? So it's just like, the, the, it goes on and on like this. So it's like when, you know, especially a celibate monk, because Buddhist monks are celibate, nuns and monks are celibate. So, you know, he wouldn't, look at the parts that were attractive because why fuel the flames of you know, sexual desire when you've decided you wanted to live a life where you're celibate, right? So instead, the attention goes to things that aren't attractive. Well, let's say you're, you know, for you it's not a person, it's the new iPhone 7 or the new MacBook Pro or I guess they have new laptop. Apple has new laptops out now. Not that anybody uses laptops anymore, but so you have that, but you know, you could, we could pay attention to how easy it is to drop it in water. Like I got a new MacBook Pro a couple years ago, and like two months in, I bumped my tea, and it burnt out the keyboard or whatever it did. $750 to repair it, right? So just like remembering the fragility of it. Or maybe you just remember all the complications you have with your computer, right? As opposed to the sleekness that it weighs two ounces less than the previous model or something, or the screen's bigger, or, you know, things upload a little faster, or whatever. We could look at the entrancing qualities, or we could look at something else. Now, in practice, it's just a matter of what's skillful because. Sometimes, like if you have a really critical mind, aversive mind, then you want to look at you want to look at the more beautiful qualities. You want to be more appreciative, right? But if you have a greedy mind, you want to look at oh, it's impermanent. It could easily fall and break, or the person's going to get old. Will I still be thinking this relationship is important when we're both ninety? You know, like how much of it is about sexual attraction? Not that it's all, I mean, but just to sort of be honest, like to break it apart or hoping that somebody will save me. <clears throat> you know, another, like, I just don't want to be around myself anymore. I need a relationship. Somebody to distract myself from myself. You know, it's like, 
So we look at that. Now, all of a sudden, the relationship is less entrancing when we're a little bit more honest about what's here. We like seeing the bigger picture. So this is how we uh, understand how to remove the hindrances from the clarity, the simple, you know, like the, that, that image of the vast ocean, broad and deep and still and silent and clear and kind and wise. Kind and wise precisely because it's not getting blown around by what's coming and going. It's not identified. It's not attached. So it has perspective. But the perspective doesn't come from like being distant. Still, we're still right there. But we understand it's just an iPhone 7. It's just another human being. That human being is like this human being. That body is 99.9% like this body. Right? It poops. It stinks. It has hair. It has skin, right? It has plumbing. It has a sort of electrical system, sensitive. It ages. You see how it changes things? You know, when we just break it down, it's like their personality is conditioned by mine. My personality is conditioned by leave it to beaver, my three sons, my mother the car. These are all 60s shows, you know? Some of you probably saw some of them, some of the older folks. And uh, it's like your personality, like whoever we're attracted, it's also a conditioned personality, being born out of the culture, out of your particular genetic set and your particular home that you grew up in and culture that you were raised in. And it's imperfect. So when we see that about human beings, we'll have compassion for them, but we're not going to expect them to save us or make my life perfect. Because what a setup that is for the relationship. It's the same thing with the iPhone 7 or whatever else. It's like, yeah, maybe better having it than not having it. But salvation doesn't come from getting something. Anybody still think salvation comes from getting something? You, know, you could say, like, it is nice to have money. It is nice to be, have wholesome relationship. It is nice to have health. But there are a lot of people who have money, have some nice relationships, have some health, and they're not happy. Right? So what's the story there? Still, we'd all prefer to have those things than to not have those things. I would prefer to have them to not have them. But I now understand that that isn't an answer. It's... It, allows me, it's like a privilege to have health, to not be oppressed, to have some uh, money in the bank, to have some wholesome relationships. It's a privilege that allows us to be reflective about what are the causes for real happiness. And in Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, real happiness is the understanding of what's here. Activity of the mind, the activity of our lives, Thinking, emoting, sensing sensation, hearing sounds, all of the movements, and the mind itself. The, which is really the realization of non-attachment. The way I like to talk about it comes from Ajahn Chah, this very well-known Thai teacher, Thai monk. He said, the reality of non-grasping. 
So instead of thinking the mind as being the essential me, which is a problem, because then we're going to want to, I want to get to that true me. It's really the reality of non-grasping. That's what needs to be realized. Because the reality of non-grasping teaches us how to be in the world as a responsive, beautiful, engaged human being. But we have to realize that reality of non-grasp. We have to wake up to it. And the way we wake up to it is we first start getting interested in what's hindering the mind. And then we learn to pay attention in a way that doesn't feed the fire of that pattern, but weakens it. So when there's a lot of aversion, a lot of impatience, a lot of boredom, a lot of fear, what is it the mind, how is the mind relating that's feeding that? fear. How can the mind pay attention, relate, that starves it, that weakens it, that causes the fear to go away? It's all conditional. It's all cause and effect. So we're always feeding the fires of intensity, reactivity, but we don't realize it. But with mindfulness, we'll start to notice, oh, isn't it interesting that the mind's thinking about this again, that the mind's paying attention to this? I walk in the room and I notice this. Isn't it interesting? Every time I go home, I notice what my wife has done that I don't like. Isn't that it? What is that? Is that because my wife is so bad? Or there's that hindrance of aversion that for an aversive type like me, that's what it's going to notice. It's going to be critical. I walk into Comic-Con. Isn't it interesting that I notice what wasn't put away the night before? And make all those little mental notes. I should mention this to this person and that to that person. God, now with technology, I don't know if you've ever seen Wunderlist or Wunderlist or whatever it's called, but I can have like 30 to-do lists, one for every volunteer and things I need to mention to them. It's like perfect for an aversive type. Yeah, and they'll take care of that. That's right. That's why we've hired Shelley Graff to be the manager of the center. <laughs> Forced retirement. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's really so helpful for me to notice that critical mind, that aversive mind, because when, I, when my mind is in a more superficial frame, I always think it's the world's fault that I'm critical, that I'm aversive, that I'm impatient, that I'm judging. Like if the world were perfect, I wouldn't have to be so judgmental, so critical. So why don't we all get, you know, all of you get your act. I'm also aversive to myself. So why don't we all get our act together? And then finally I can put it down and stop being an aversive type. But what we really learn is that I can be engaged. I can show up as a functional, useful human being without the aversion. And, And it's really about like balancing it. Like, training my mind not to just go to what's off, but to see what's beautiful, or to learn how to relate with kindness. It's like, like if I'm on my game, doing my practice, then before I walk in the door, it doesn't last long, but I'm getting better at this. It's like, why not move through the door with a generous, kind heart? Why not move through the door looking at what to appreciate, what's beautiful. That is so hard. 
But, but it's so powerful to see that as practice. Now, for you greedy types, right, you need something else. You need to see that what the mind the greets for wants, you want to see it, you want to see the whole picture. It's not like it doesn't have a sliver that's actually attractive or beautiful, but there's a lot more there that you're missing, like that it's impermanent, that it's constantly changing, that you're not in control of how it changes, right? And that ultimately you can't own it, anything. You can have it for a while maybe if you're lucky, but everything goes away. Everything goes away. Everything goes away. Even knowledge goes away. What is it that we can, a person can actually hold on and have forever? Actually, there's one thing. The reality of non-grasping. Right? The heart that doesn't grasp, the mind that doesn't grasp, even death can't take that away. Because as that process unfolds, the reality of non-grasping understands now dying is happening. It's like this. Can this be okay? Do I need to react? Do I need to be afraid or get tight? I can, but I don't need to. I can relate through this reality of non-grasping. I can let it be what it is. So I'll leave it here. I mentioned last week that I wanted to save more time to hear from people because one thing I guarantee is in this room of 100 people or so, or maybe a little less tonight, there, we've learned a lot about what hinders the balance, stability, clarity of the mind, right? Think about how many moments, mind moments, there have been among all of us when our balance, that stability, that clarity, that great ocean of love and wisdom has been disturbed, right? We've forgotten it. So what have you learned gets in the way of your balance, clear, clear stable awareness? What it, have you learned that feeds it, feeds the agitation, feeds the disturbance? Or any questions that you have? And remember, just point the mic right at your mouth like this. And it's nice if you want to speak to say your name too. Anybody want to start us off? What have you been learning? What questions do you have? Yeah, please, start us off, Brooke. Um, I'm Brooke. Mark, I know you talked about this before, but I still don't quite get what aversion doubt is i just don't could you say something about that again please yeah in terms of our practice like when you're not sure you see that there's some pattern some reactive pattern active and you're not sure then you you can start with like what is this what is this and stay real close to the feeling of it like the uncomfortable feeling because all of these hindrances are unpleasant right and then you could go through the list. Is this wanting? Is the mind wanting something to be other than it is? Is the mind not wanting, hating? Like aversion has a lot of different flavors. Fear is aversion, boredom is aversion, irritation, as well as things like outright hate and anger is aversion, right? So is this aversion? And so you, you just use that frame, like the word, the concept of aversion, and then you just see if it makes whatever's going on in your heart and mind, if it brings some clarity to it. And then, okay, so is it dullness, sleepiness? Is it restlessness, kind of uh, uneasy, anxious, worrying, restless worrying going on? Or is it doubt, like the mind 
wanting to define something, but it can't. Wanting to figure out, but it can't. And spinning in a way that doesn't lead to any resolution to the wanting to understand, wanting to define. Some circular sort of proliferation of the mind, not getting anywhere. So asking is really... But even if you can't figure it out, then then you know what it is, it's confusion. The mind doesn't know. So not knowing is like this. And the amazing thing is, that's clear. That's not a problem. When you know that you don't know, then that's not a hindrance. That's the mind knowing that it doesn't know. Oh, not knowing is like this. Confusion's like this. Okay? So as soon as you see the hindrance as something that's being known, is it a hindrance? No. Because now the mind can be very clear. Oh, yeah, irritation's like this. Greediness is like this. Like there are a lot of times, back to my example, where I notice my mind is irritated when I go in the door, you know, that example. I still may be irritated acting it out, but there's some wisdom that understands, oh, this is just how it is sometimes, you know. And, and so the first step for me is to sort of make fun of my critical mind out loud. It would be better if I just, if there wasn't irritation or a critical mind. But given that there is going to be a critical mind, to kind of out loud acknowledge that it's there and not pretend that it's skillful is a step. And we can do that too. This is where it's good to have Dharma friends, people who have interest in being more awake that you can sort of share your hindrances with. We could have a hindrance party. Or tomorrow night you can dress up as a hindrance. What are you? Anger incarnate. <laughs> Lust incarnate. <laughs> yeah. Who would like to go next? Other thoughts? Somebody's got to ha- has to have learned something about what hinders awareness. We see it all the time when we're sitting. Like what gets in the way? Yeah, Nick, please. My name's Nick. Um, I think just kind of listening to you talk about that, kind of making fun of the hindrances, I also have this funny moment of, like, it'll be like a peaceful afternoon, and I won't be at work, and also I'll start worrying about work, and I'll start, like, being like, oh, like, I got to fix this at work, I got to fix this at work. This is a problem. This person's a problem. This is going to be a problem. And it's just really, like, it's hilarious. I started to see it more as, like, like wow, like, here I'm in the bit, middle of a beautiful place or on a walk or something like that or grocery shopping and I'm thinking about work and worrying about it and yeah just kind of seeing that pop up kind of makes me laugh yeah and this is the real beauty of and Nick's been on a number of Buddhist retreats but when you go on a a meditation retreat an awareness retreat and just the simplicity of the structure you know you're not really talking to anybody and you don't have your cell phone it's real quiet simple schedule and you really see how that addiction to intensity, that the mind will find something intense to worry about, to plan about, to analyze, to criticize. You even start judging other people on retreat. It's like you know who they are, even though you, you don't know them. Just because you've seen them, you feel like, and you're like I, I like this person, I don't like that person, and this person I'd like to hook up with, this person over here. I, w-. I mean, it's like amazing how the dramas and like how they've, 
you know, the architecture is all wrong, and even the landscaping, and somebody should mow the lawn, and why are there so many of this? And it's really amazing because it, it stands out because we're not so, we can't justify the distractions as much. We don't have as many duties and responsibilities, and we really see this part of the mind that we call the hindrances, and we have a lot of respect. One of the great little books, actually we have it out on retreats for people to study. It's called Don't Look Down on the Hindrances, except he uses the word defilements. Don't Look Down on the Defilements. And there's a second part to the title. Anybody remember it? Oh, they'll laugh at you. Yeah, don't look down on the defilements or they'll laugh at you, right? Because these patterns have a lot of momentum in our mind. And we need to respect them. I respect that irritated, critical mind. And I respect my wife for enduring it. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Take the go. We've got time for two or three more people. What have you been learning from your practice, or what questions do you have? Yeah, please, all the way over. Thanks, Trish. This is our program host, Trish, so you can check with her if you have any questions at the end. My name is David, and um, one of the things I'm learning as I'm coming here listening to you talk is how how different we are. As you talk about your own mind and your personality, I notice it's different from mine. You have your quirks, and I have my quirks. I think I'm more of a a greedy type Mm -hmm. um, who likes things and gets caught in that vicious circle and it's very seductive. Um, you know, I, I feel like I could get addicted to anything. Um, food is my, one of my favorite things. But, you mm-hmm. know, uh, sex, I don't touch drugs and alcohol because I'm afraid I'd be lost then, you know. How do you, how do you break that cycle? Because it's so delicious. Yeah. You know? It's expand, like I mentioned, we have to expand the vision because it is delightful. And the Buddha says this, it's really important to acknowledge the very real juiciness. Well, also, irritation is juicy too. But greed especially is juicy. When we imagine getting something, you know, there is real joy and gratification. But we just need to expand it like something simple, like if you're imagining something in your fridge that you can eat when you get home. Part of what we're imagining just... It's delightful just to imagine it, and it will probably be delightful to have it. But that delight stops pretty quick. But we don't think about that. Isn't that interesting? We just think about the the 30 seconds or the... I mean, it doesn't take long before we're full, right? You know, and mostly the thing that's juicy is the anticipation. The the chewing and the tasting is delightful, but it it's very quickly kind of goes away. Now, we could pay attention to that the next time we're fantasizing about some delight that we're looking forward to. The whole picture and how all the stress that's involved in just having it, like having to go to the co-op to buy it, you know, and then having to work out so that it doesn't show up in our waste or, you know, all the other pieces that go with the eating or the heart disease or the other complications to eating the things that we like eating. Oh, yeah. 
their problems. And just even um, the ethics you know, around global warming and the kinds of foods that we eat and the environmental problems that come with our agriculture. and It's like everything has implications. And when we bring in the big picture, it really sobers us up. Sure, we could go do that. It's not like it would be the worst thing. But when I take everything into consideration, I think I'll pass. It's amazing how, if we take up the big picture and how simple our life gets. Like, when I'm just focused in a little way, it can make sense to drive across town to get just the kind of brownie I want to eat. But when I take the bigger picture, like all the things that I could do that would be useful to do, burning gasoline to get and come back, spending the money, just the hassle of driving through traffic. Like when I bring all of that to mind, the desire goes away. It's just brought into perspective. So we have to train the mind to have a bigger vision of the whole thing. We're not trying to convince ourselves that it doesn't, that there isn't a delight. We're just adding more facts. And it puts the delight in perspective. Because, you know, if we try to scold ourselves, oh, you don't need that or you shouldn't want that, there's just, it just uh, doesn't work, basically. Yeah, thanks, Dave. David, is that right? Yeah, thanks, David. Time for one more person. Anybody else like to share? Hi, I'm Emily. Um, so we've talked about um, the aversive mind and the greedy mind, but I have a very doubtful mind and confused mind. So what would be like a scenario if you're spinning in doubt how what would be a good mindset yeah so the yeah doubt is especially seductive because on in the frame in the sort of conceptual frame where the the doubt lives it seems to make sense to think about it but we won't resolve doubt with thought so but what does resolve doubt is to if you can step out of the particular thing that's unknown that you want to resolve and just realize like let's just do this now it's a good way to end you know be just aware of your body and it might ache a little bit now having been sitting for a while but when we go right to the sensations of the knees and the buttocks on the chair or the cushion feel the hands touching whatever they're touching when we when the mind opens to sensation there's no doubt. You know, doubt exists within, within a conceptual frame. It's a story. It needs a story. But when we just turn to the moment to seeing, to hearing, to sensing sensations, when we have that direct and immediate connection with things as they are, the, the, the doubt will go away. And we'll sense the relief of not, the not spinning so even then when we're allowing thinking to arise again, it creates a perspective. It's like, just take something like global climate change. And here we are, citizens of the world. Like it or not, we're responsible. But how does somebody figure out exactly how to respond? And now, we don't want to be complacent we don't want to justify non-response, but if you're in that circle of frenetic demanding that you know exactly 
what you should do. Should I buy a car or not? Should I buy products that have plastic packaging or not? Should I set my thermostat for 68 or higher or lower? Or you know, And expecting an answer, like this is the answer. You know, there is no answer. So it's just nice to take one breath and just be present with the breath and to realize like in that moment there's no doubt. It's just the awareness of sensation. And it really helps us with this world where we have to make choices. I'm going to go left or right. I'm going to you know, be in this relationship or I'm not going to be in the relationship. I'm going to take this job or this job. Because we've learned how to be, like when we're just with the body sensations, we know how to be without def- depending on a definition, you know, without it needing to be perfect. It's already okay. Like that's what we realize when we just open to the present moment, that the moment's already okay. Like we're touching the depth, the breadth of the ocean. We're realizing the okayness. And then it allows us to make a choice without needing to be certain, without really needing to know, not demanding that we know. Yeah, That's really the resolution of that. It has to be quick, though, Andy. Um, for me, a resolution that I found for doubt is um, not to, focusing on the breath and then imagining all people I'm connected to and all the things, you know, connection. Um, and then it becomes so little. Yeah. So that would be another great way is to, it's really the same, but instead of the ocean of sensation, the ocean of love. Basically, anything that takes us out of the self-story, and love is one of the better, but not love, not a particular love, a universal love, a spiritual kind of love, a love that goes everywhere equally. So if you have that, if that's accessible at any moment, then if you just drop into that, it's like the space of wisdom and love that I was talking about. If you can drop into that, that will resolve the doubt for sure. Let's just take a few seconds, just enough time for a breath together. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thanks for your comments tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.